Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Anthropology Business Podcast. I'm Matt Arts. I'm here today with Darius Yemenak, a full professor of organization studies at Kaminsky University, a chair in the Minds Department at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society, fellow at Harvard University, visiting scholar at MIT's Center for Collective Intelligence, uh, and also a uh, serving on the board of trustees for the Wikimedia Foundation, and maybe most relevant to some of the conversation today, please, the author of Thick Big Data, Doing Digital Social Sciences. So, Darish, thanks for joining me today. Would you um, mind just sharing a little bit of back, about your background? I know it's a little bit different than the traditional anthropological track I have on here, but I also appreciate that you have a very big interest in anthropology. So, would you mind just telling everybody a little bit about that? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, essentially, my PhD a while back, well, it's uh, 20 years back, um, was uh, anthropology of organization. I was studying software engineers uh, in their natural habitat. I was like following them, you know, doing the field work. And uh, as a result of that, I got really interested in using qualitative methods in organization studies. Uh, for quite a long while, I was doing the, the traditional anthropology of work, anthropology of organization. And then I got hooked up on Wikipedia, and I, I thought it's so much fun editing it. And as a result, eventually I had to decide uh, what to do with it, because I was spending like one hour, two hours a day doing Wikipedia work. And eventually I thought, you know what, if, if I'm going up for a 10-year review, and I'm not putting these hours into some good work, it's, it's going to be a lot of waste. So I, I thought maybe it could be a project, you know, an ethnographic project. And I thought about digital ethnography at the time. And I started working on uh, a community study of Wikipedia and Wikipedians. Did it for a couple of years, published a book about it, Common Knowledge and Ethnography of Wikipedia. And, you know, all in all, uh, I decided that digital anthropology is definitely a way to study organizations, especially the new emerging organizations and emerging communities that we have online. And I think it's uh, basically one of the leading, but also very undervalued methods that we have. And one of the things that I think we're missing in this uh, repertoire is uh, adding a little bit of quant flavor. Because most anthropological people think it's, it's you know ethnography and ethnography proper. Ideally, it shouldn't be anything deviating from the standard. And as a result, uh, they're stuck with the old ways, which is totally fine. And the old methods are super interesting and super useful. But also, I think it's a, it's a huge waste that we're not opening our minds to to the new forms. Yeah, agreed. And, and certainly, that's why I want to share this message. And so, 
Let's start, though, first, a little bit more of the backstory. When you wanted to, to do this kind of work, you know, how was the, the reception in the beginning for you? Yeah, so my, my view is that we have a long history in anthropology. We have a long history of uh, trying to say that the new approaches, new methods are, are not the proper ones, right? I mean, we, we, we had this with anthropology for organization as well. I mean, a while back, people who were doing anthropology for organization or anthropology of work we're told, you know what, this is not the actual, this is not the actual proper ethnography. You should be spending many years in the field. You should be not studying uh, cultures that are a little more similar to your own that, uh, than, uh, than in, the, in the traditional anthropology. So we have this pattern of calling new methods not really actually proper. And I think with digital ethnography, it was the same. Currently, digital ethnography is perceived pretty much okay-ish, at least not to the uh, not to the, the, the very small subset of people who consider it impure anymore. But we also have this approach now that is combining qualitative and quantitative studies. Uh, I call it thick big data approach. You know, this is because I think it sounds good, it sounds fun. But some people would call it computational ethnography, and basically accommodating the whole plethora of data we have from qualitative approach and try to interpret it through the qualitative lens. And I think many people will say it's not ethnography anymore. It's not proper ethnography. And to me, it very much is. And I would even argue that without proper ethnographic angle, all those vast computational social science approaches are missing a lot. So my argument in, in Thick Big Data is that without ethnographic background, it's very easy to just get drowned in this ocean of data without finding a meaning. So it's easier, paradoxically, it's easier to train somebody who's a trained ethnographer, to train them in computational methods than to take a data scientist and train them to become an ethnographer. And this is what I try to argue to all ethnographers out there don't try to be purists. Don't, don't say that, you know, it has to be ethnography. It has to be just the field work, the field notes, the interviews. Accept the fact that computational methods can help operationally in even narrowing down what you want to study in understanding where the most interesting field data will be in basically getting the whole picture, but also in persuasiveness. Because if, we, if you look at ethnography, one of the problems we have with the outer world is that people say, oh, it's just literature. Oh, it's just hearsay. Oh, no, somebody went to the field, talked to a couple of people. This is what they found. But who should care, right? It's just a small community at this moment in time. With digital ethnography, it's a little easier because the data tracks are often still there. So if you're a digital ethnographer, oftentimes people can come back to you and say, you know what? Ten years ago, you did the study. We don't think this is what happened. But with traditional ethnography, the moment is gone, it's done, and, and people will say it's not necessarily valid science. And as we know, ethnography has traditionally had, had a huge problem with being on the verge of literature, humanities, so it's already a huge problem. Nowadays, when we look at data scientists who come and say, you know what, I don't really care what you found in your little ethnographic project, this is what the actual science says, right? They, they will bring the data and they... they say this is uh, the reality rather than the interpretation that we have. So I think 
even in terms of persuasiveness, if we as ethnographers are able to accept the fact that quantitative data can supplement what we find and can be interpreted to some extent through ethnographic lens, I think it's uh, it would be a huge win for validity and legitimization of ethnography as a whole. And so maybe let's like kind of give an example here. Um, I know you've studied, you know, you've mentioned organizations a few times. So I think many people listening at this point, they might might easily see how you could study online communities using digital ethnography. Um, but do you also, you know, how how would you bridge the sort of physical with the digital? How how do you bring that together in your practice? Yeah, so that's that's another big blurry and messy uh, area. I would say there are, there are a couple of stages, right? It, it, that you can see there are a couple of methods in this uh, sphere. Some people use ethnography. For me, ethnography is a very interesting method, but it's not necessarily fully ethnographic, at least in my, my understanding, as it can rely on very short sprints of doing field work. It, it resembles ethnography to some extent, but it's it's much shorter sprints. Then we have virtual ethnography, which would be relying just on the online data. So studying avatars rather than people. If you look at it this way, sure, virtual ethnography is super useful, but down to business, you don't really understand the community because you never know if the account you're studying, is it operated by, the, by one person, actually? Maybe not. Maybe there's a couple of people operating the same account. From the other point of view, you see a couple of accounts talking to each other do we know they are not operating by one person? This the so-called sock puppeting phenomenon. And so on and so forth. There's quite a number of issues with just virtual ethnography. So then the next stage, which, which, uh, which I think is uh, the most interesting, and this is what I do, is digital ethnography. And for me, digital ethnography is combining studying the virtual with studying the actual humans. So sure, when I study Wikipedia, I will spend a lot of time studying stuff happening online. And I will see the nicknames, I will study the avatars, but then I will go talk to these people. I will have interviews with them. I will put faces to, to nicknames, and then I will try to combine. And of course, if it's just a virtual community, like Wikipedia largely is, part of this field work will necessarily have to take place online. But I don't think it's possible, even in such a case, not to do the actual interviews with people face-to-face, because without that, we're losing this link between avatars and humans. So to me, digital ethnography would be exactly trying to reach across the just the online uh, methods and, and supplement it with the, uh, with the human touch. And so that's, you know, in a sense, a little bit of a conversation around the field site. And then in terms of methods, would you mind elaborating just a little bit more on what the different you know, methods might look like for scraping, you know, analyzing, et cetera. Yeah, because I just spoke about ethnography, but then again, to ethnography, I think we need to add a couple of tool sets. And if you look at what Action Research did, I know a couple of, uh, a big part of ethnography is also Action Research inspired. So Action Researchers have a very agnostic approach to methods. And I, I love David Greenwood, who taught me this uh, the the chair of anthropology department at Cornell University, where I spent uh, a year as a postdoc. Uh, he told me, you know what, methods are secondary, right? It's what is interesting is what you need to find out when you decide about the objective, what you want to find out. Then you 
adjust methods to it. And action researchers would say, sure, ethnography is super important. We cannot get rid of it. We cannot really understand human communities without it. But if we need to have data about, let's say, demographics, let's look for quantitative data because this is what we want. And I would say this is the same case with computational data. We need to understand the community. We need to understand the culture, the insider's logic, right? It's true. But to get to this stage, oftentimes we need to sift through a lot of trash, a lot of blind alleys, a lot of empty hypotheses. So this is where I think computational methods are super handy. And you, you, you ask me which methods, which ways of getting the data would be useful. First of all, I would claim that not everybody has to learn a programming language, but maybe they, sh- they, they should consider it. So a good start would be to consider investing 100 hours into learning basic Python. Because with Python, or with R for that matter, it's very easy to start using programs that are already out there, modules that are already available that somebody developed, and you just need to understand the very basic syntax to start using it. Once you acquire this basic knowledge of Python or R, you can acquire data that nobody else acquired before. For instance, I'll give you a very short example. You've heard, I'm sure, Twitter is limiting the access to, to, to databases, which is very unfortunate. But before it happened, I was able to scrape everything with hashtag Bitcoin, everything with hashtag Ethereum. And this database, uh, it's the largest database of the sort ever published, to my knowledge. This database will serve me in a very preliminary understanding of what is the conversation, what is the discourse about Bitcoin uh, about. Uh, what is it? Is it about publishing memes? So is it a culture or, you know, building a community through sharing some knowledge? Or is it about persuading people to invest? Is it the story about uh, a dream? Is it a story about uh, a crash? So is, do people even activate more when Bitcoin is down or is when, when it's growing in, in, in price? So things like this are super easy as conversation starters. Also, it helps me in understanding the lingo. Instead of spending a month, two months in the field, trying to make sense, trying to find an insider who will guide me, I can already start with familiarizing with myself with the conversations that are ongoing. And finally, what is even more important, maybe computational methods like this will allow me to focus on users that already are important from the point of view of social network. So instead of trying to do it by the word of mouth, you know, oh, tell me who is important, you know, I'll I'll go to this person, talk to them, and, you know, trying to find an angle with a snowball meter or whatever, I will be already aware from the point of view of people voting with their thumbs up or thumbs down who is important in the conversation. So this would be a very rudimentary story. But even if you think about, if you're super averse to learning programming, you don't even need to program to, to start using computational data because there's quite a number of powerful zero-code or low-code approaches to getting this very rudimentary but big-picture, broad strokes uh, view of uh, the community you want to study. And I can definitely recommend trying to use quite a number of tools that already can be plugged into Google Sheets, for example. You can, you can do a little bit of data scraping that will get you 
directly into Google Sheets. There's Twitter scraper sentiment analysis available for that. You can query Wikidata, you can query Wikipedia directly into Google Sheets. Another uh, thing that's super useful when you want to combine, for example, you have, let's say you have 2000 accounts and you want to have a very, very basic quiz hook. For example, you want to understand how many of these people are notable and how many of these are like natural leaders of the community. Because if you, if Keanu Reeves is very popular, it's probably not the result of their uh, standing in the community, it's the result of their being famous. So if you want to sift out people who are famous for whatever reason, most likely you will not know everybody who's famous, famous wrestlers, famous soccer players, whoever. So you just want to sift them out. And what is left is people who are important, mostly for the merits of what they're posting. It makes your life easier, makes it quicker to, to find, to narrow down. Things like this, I think, are super important and easy. But even identifying the community that you want to study. Most recently, I'm studying misinformation, disinformation online. I'm analyzing anti-vaxxer communities. I'm also un analyzing anti-science anti -science communities. So people who are questioning the consensus, scientific consensus about um, various things, like medicine, uh, lifestyle, fitness, things like this. So even to understand which online communities should I study, it's super useful to use computational methods. Because, for example, now I have about 100 uh, Telegram groups uh, that are focused on this particular topic. Without using just a little bit of computational science, it would be relatively time-consuming for me to just join those 500 groups, uh, 100 groups, and spend time there to, to even see what the traffic is, how, how big they are. With using computational methods, I will know this in 15 minutes. So it's a huge time saver, huge gain. And also, from the point of view of interpretation, once you go to the field, you talk to people, some interpretation emerges, then you can do another iteration, right? You, you see, you talk to people who are important, then you can do, for example, social network analysis. So you see to whom they are related. Are they talking about the same things as the others or not? So I would say that going back and forth between qualitative and quantitative methods is a super useful way of drowning and revisiting your findings, interpretive findings. Of course, this has to come with a big caveat. Oftentimes in ethnography and in anthropology, we come up with very brave, bold interpretations of what we see. And it's exciting. I love it. I, I think it's just inspiring. Not always we will be able to say, yeah, this is also supported by quantitative data. But I, I, I don't have a problem with that. I think ethnography should stay true to its nature in a sense that it should be inspiring. It should be true to what you believe is true. But oftentimes, you will also find quantitative data that supports you. You will see that some of the emerging interpretation, emerging understanding of the community you're studying can also be supplemented by stuff that will persuade other folks than the ones that typically listen to you. Uh, if you look at what is happening to social sciences as a whole, physicists come to social sciences, computer uh, scientists or data scientists are coming to social sciences and they are just using the same old approach that they are using there to try to interpret social data. I don't think it's possible, honestly, without solid background in methodology, in theory, 
what we think about human nature to just throw numbers and, and say this is what is happening because numbers are never neutral. They are always ideological in a sense. It has to come with interpretation, which we really often don't, don't realize. But the other way around, if an ethnographer brings some data to the interpretation, I, I think it's absolutely valid and absolutely useful because it fits in. So I would say ethnographic interpretation is basically like a solid fundament, so solid ground for building an interpretation. Without this, computational science doesn't have it, so it doesn't really fly. But if you build on ethnographic interpretation and add computational data, it's, it's just even better. And so in your vision, do you see traditional ethnographers working in teams with, say, data scientists? Or would you prefer to see a reality in which we're just being trained in multiple disciplines ourselves? Well, in a perfect world, we should be, you know, jacks of all trades, sure. Uh, it would be nice uh, if every capable ethnographer also did their own coding. But it's, it's, it does, it's not always the case. Some of, these skill, some of these skills are technical, and the skills that are technical can be outsourced. But we need to be careful, because you know, some of these skills will already bring interpretations. So... Since it's interpretive, it has to be you who's doing the decisions, who's doing the, uh, who's querying the questions that are, that bear consequences. Moreover, data science is actually quite expensive right now. If you think from, from a pragmatic point of view, unless you're running a really large grant, it's very often much more efficient for you to be, to do just a little bit of heavy lifting in data science than to try to pay out of the pocket for you know somebody doing it for you because again it's not it's not rocket science this is absolutely acquirable skill 100 hours spent on learning python will really do wonders to what you can do with data and you can already start with zero code or low code approaches even scraping for example to people who are too scared of python i'm recommending to use Scrapers such as ParseCup, for example. ParseCup, well, yeah, it costs probably $150, maybe $200 per month, so it's not, it's not cheap, but it allows you to scrape data from any website, right? So if, if you think about it this way, yeah, I will spend, maybe two weeks will, will be what I need. I will get the data and then I will play with it later. It's probably an investment of a much smaller scale than trying to learn to, to, to code from scratch, even though I, I definitely rec recommend learning to code. So uh, long story short, back to your question, I think ideally we should try to acquire these skills ourselves, period. And honestly, the new generations of ethnographers are already doing this because they, especially mostly, I think it's very much uh, resource driven. They do not have the, the budgets to hire uh, data scientists, so they have to find a way themselves and they realize eventually that it's not not so difficult. But the older generations like, like me and, and, and older, I think we need to realize that this is like learning how to use Microsoft Office. It's, it's not, not more difficult. It's just at some point in time, you need to learn new tools. And if you just want to stay to the same old, world, old, old ways, sure you can, and you can, you can just uh, scribble down your notes, maybe this is not the best way to go. I mean, this is not the best use of your time. And finally, 
data science in the hands of an ethnographer will bring different results than data science that is commissioned by an ethnographer. My view is that playing with data allows you to ask different questions, inspires your fieldwork as well, makes you basically understand the world better. Because you're, you're going to the field, you're talking to people, then you go look into the data, you query the data, you wrangle it to understand it better, and then you go back to the field. So it's, it's a process, it's iterative. It's, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's as bad as trying to outsource fieldwork or, or, or interviews, because this is obviously that the method itself relies on you being the tool. But nevertheless, I would say that it's probably good for you to at least try to do it yourself to the extent that you're able. It doesn't have to be coding, but, but it should be playing with data yourself. Yeah, so one thing that comes at the end of the process uh, could be data visualization. Right. And so where do you see that you know, fitting in? The beauty of learning Python or R, for that matter, is that it's all one package, right? I mean, data visualization is part of data science in Python and in R, which as you, as you learn, you can learn as well. And there are already existing packages that allow you use very different data visualizations out of the box, much more powerful than, than uh, what you have in Excel or any other standalone program. Moreover, allowing you to really make it look any way you want. You, you, you can visualize it in and out, not just with the with the predefined packages and with, on a much bigger data sets. If, if I'm working with a data set of, let's say, 2 million rows, Excel would just die. I mean, it, it wouldn't be able to, to work with that even on a very powerful, powerful machine. With Python or with R, you will be able to, to work with that without fuss. So my strong recommendation would be to definitely consider learning Python and R also for this purpose. Instead of learning yet another tool to do this, just learn, learn a universal skill that will allow you to do different things. You're thinking are machine learning? Python is for that. I mean, sure, there will be differences. You will need to learn new modules, new packages, a little bit of specific functions, but you can do all this in Python. You want to do an online questionnaire? Python can do this for you. Actually, for questionnaires, it's probably easier to to use a standalone. But if you want to create a chatbot, for whatever reason, you need a chatbot. Python has already libraries that will allow you doing this. So I would say once you understand how powerful this uh, toolset is, oftentimes you will not necessarily want to turn to existing on, on the off-the-shelf uh, solutions. With, with the caveat that sometimes when you get too excited about Python, you will spend, let's say, uh, two weeks trying to solve a thing that you could just buy off the shelf for $200. Sure, happened to me once or twice. But I treat it as an investment, right? Trying to solve the problem helps you understand it better and makes you better at using this tool anyway, which, which is a useful tool for various purposes. So I strongly recommend Python and R for data visualization, period. And thanks. And now, you know, a lot of what we talked about uh, somewhat implies self-study because there's not many programs in the in well in the world, but especially in the U.S. right now that are are teaching sort of this you know this sort of combined approach um, like you write about in thick big data. And so 
you know, being a professor yourself, any thoughts on what programs should be doing right now to really modernize, you know, get caught up to really the need at this moment and, and help students ultimately? The problem is, that, as I see it, is that anthropology and ethnography is quite fossilized in terms of ideology, which is paradoxical because we study ideologies, right? This is what we study, how people define the world they see, how they make sense of the world. And we ourselves, as ethnographers, will very often be ideologically driven in the sense that people who will say, yeah, you know what, every ethnography student should spend two semesters learning Python. People saying this, they would be perceived as weirdos, they would be perceived as, you know, maybe incompetent, maybe just uh, not understanding what true ethnography really is. And this true ethnography is, is a narrative that, as we can see, decades after decades, applies to different things, but oftentimes will be basically neophobic. I definitely believe every humanities student should actually spend two semesters learning Python. Not necessarily because all of them will be using Python, but because it will change the way they see the world, it will make their life easier. Maybe I'm, uh, I'm not a purist, but I would, I, I would assume this is super important. But to be fair, I also think that learning law is super important, right? I mean, spending a little bit, maybe a semester, trying to understand law for anthropology, super important. So if you look at it this way, maybe anthropology students should be learning everything but anthropology. It's, again, probably a little too much uh, of extreme. So to find a middle, a middle ground, I would say that anthropology students should get some basic understanding of methods. This is what sociology solved a while back. Sociology departments are relatively good at teaching people how to use methods of various sorts, including a little bit of ethnography. And, you know, sociologists will often think they are ethnographers. They are not, but it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a longer story, but they, they get a little bit of everything. So for ethnographers, I would say anthropology departments should be trying to open themselves to just, just get enabled, just maybe show people how computers work a little bit and, you know, see what happens. What's your thoughts on just the general future of this, you know, of, of quant and qual coming together in this new model of, of computational or, or thick big data as you frame it? I, I think it's a huge challenge in the sense that if we do not open our minds to computational approaches, the world will move, will move on. The biggest risk that we face in anthropology is insignificance. People will say, eh, sure, yeah, the humanities, you know, people write about stuff all the time, but it's basically literature. The actual discovery of social behavior, the actual discovery of human mind, of culture is elsewhere. And this, it would be a huge shame because we will never really understand culture without getting to understand the culture from within. So if you look, if you look, uh, let's say, if, if you look at Tinder, right? There's amazing studies of uh, that can be done on Tinder. One revolutionary thing that was discovered was stuff about racism, right? And it is only natural when when you do traditional sociology, you ask people, "Are you racist?" Right? I mean, you do not ask it this way, but you form a question to try trying to infer if people are racist, and people will necessarily. Not necessarily uh, always understand what you're asking, but uh, they get a feeling, right? If you go to Tinder data, 
it's 100% honest, right? Because you're, you're, you're using it as a tool. You're looking for somebody you want to hook up with at the very least or, or find a significant other. Uh, and this is true because you, you cannot lie there. It's your actual preference. And the actual preferences and what people tell about in sociological questionnaires, two different worlds. But to understand why, to understand the context, to put a little bit of meaning and interpretation to it, data science will not get up at all. I think this is where we need to be able to argue that the biggest value of ethnography is adding meaning, adding interpretation. Does it have to be just qualitative data? I don't think so. I think adding meaning is a value of its own. Sure, it requires a long field work, understanding people in the culture, but using whatever tools you have available to understand it a little better, is, I think it's a must. Well, that's probably a, a good way to, to summarize. And so if anybody was interested in getting in touch with you and sort of learning more, uh, where would be a good place? Um, available on LinkedIn. Of course, you can uh, shoot me a message right there. Also, I have this book, Think Big Data, doing the digital social sciences, uh, published with Oxford University Press uh, a while back. So if you want to familiarize a little bit with the approach, it's probably a good start. Uh, other than that, uh, I'm definitely game if somebody wants to do stuff computational or ethnography-wise. So uh, feel free to reach out. Well, Teresh, thanks for coming on again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.